Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Demo Jockeys. I'm Jack Cochran. And I am Adam DiTomaso. We are your Demo Jockey co-hosts. Consider con- Continuing our conversation on range by David Epstein. Fantastic book so far. We had such a great conversation last episode. I lost track of the time, and I think we, we had our longest episode yet. So if you missed it, make sure you go back and catch it. Uh, fantastic conversation between Adam and I. We're going to continue that today. For a few more topics next week, we're actually going to have our guest on the show, Ron Whits, uh, Whitson, who is a pre-sales thought leader extraordinaire. Follow him on LinkedIn, always posting great content. I'm really excited to have him on the show here joining us. And then if you want to get ahead of the book for next week, I mentioned this before, Six Habits of Highly Effective Sales Engineers by Chris White. Great book uh, that we're going to be doing in January. So get that. Pick it up. You can find links to all this information on demojockeys.com. All right, Adam. All right. So last week, we talked a little bit about the overall idea of the book. Yes. We talked about uh, specializing. We talked about using kind of your generalist background as an asset for you in your career. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about this idea of how we learn, which is brought up in the book, how we learn, how we come up with ideas and how ideas stick in our brain. Tell me about a lesson that you had to learn, whether it was a lesson you had to go figure out on your own, lesson you were, someone was trying to teach you of something that you're never going to forget. Tie my shoes. Tying, Tying my shoes. shoes. Okay. Yep. Uh, so, true story. Okay, go for it. Yeah. I mean, there's got to be a story behind tying There's shoes. totally a story behind this. <laughs> okay. Circa 1987, when Adam was a young lad, and what was also popular was high-top sneakers. Well, uh, we had just moved into a house with a pool. My father said to me, hey, you're going to vacuum that pool. Why don't you go get to throw your suit on, jump in the pool, and then you're going to run the vacuum all over the bottom. I was so excited. It was springtime. I sprinted up in the yard, into the house, up the stairs, threw on my suit, threw on my high-top sneakers, and guess what I did not do? Tied the laces. Mm. In the full sprint, as I turned the corner, um, I tripped, fell down a flight of stairs and broke both my arms and spent the summer in the pool with Wonder Bread Bags on my casts. In a <laughs> the Wonder tube. Bread Bags. Oh, my brothers gosh. and sisters called me the buoy. And <laughs> my grandmother, God bless her soul, bought me this beautiful little remote-controlled radio shack boat so I could at least have some fun in the pool as I was the big buoy bobbing up and around. And so I'm guessing that from that point forward, the shoes were always tied. Oh, I am the king of tying shoes. I tie baby shoes. I tie people's shoes. I tie old people's <laughs> shoes. I've tied my 19-year-old daughter's shoes. Um, and I yell at people who don't tie their... I see people... In New York City, I've seen people with untied shoes. <laughs> they don't know. Yeah, I. so <laughs> that's... That's perfect, Adam. I, a little bit of a teaser question, but as we, there's actually a section in the book where one thing that gets really hammered in, which I think your your story is a perfect lead-in for that, that we often really just want someone to give us the answer, but yes. things that we experience either we have to struggle for that cause some type of negative pain, something that we have to work for in some way is going to cement itself in our brain more long term. So tying shoes being a little bit more of that's just you had a very negative thing happen, therefore it's tied in your brain, but much in the same way, think back to maybe your least favorite subject in school. 
if when you finally got that answer and you finally figured it out, you had a much higher chance of actually remembering it than, say, the really easy things that you had to learn and do, which is actually a lot of the studies of what they're getting into in the book, which is an interesting thought because we don't often move towards things that are difficult. We tend to shy away from that one. But what the book is saying is maybe those things that you had to struggle to get to are going to be the things that you're going to actually end up being better at in the long run because you had to work for it. Right. I mean, one of the first examples that in that particular chapter I thought about was interesting was just the idea of, and I actually titled this chapter uh, Hot Dogs and Math, was the idea of the question <laughs> of, you know, like what is N from an al teaching algebra? and teaching the idea of what is n, what is x, can you call it that, how can you interpret that. But once I think the students understood the concept, the idea became a lot easier. Right. Versus just explaining to someone how it works. Right. Right. I remember, I think it was pre-algebra, you had to learn, was it quadratic, quadratic equations? Remember you had to take the numbers, the x squared minus xy and then plus y squared. You need to figure out how to split those into two separate things. Do you remember that? Vaguely. Vaguely. <laughs> I rem do you know why I remember that and why I could probably still do it to this day? Is because my teacher was pretty terrible at, giving, at just giving us the answer. She wanted us to figure out why it worked. And because we had to spend all that time figuring out why it worked and not just her saying here's the here's the thing you do that you're not going to know why you're doing it here's why this works this way so yeah. to this day i could still i can still take a quadratic equation and split them out and do the things you're supposed to do and find the answer even though that was seventh grade <laughs> because i had to work for it to get it right you had to work for it to get it but also i mean and that cemented the concept in your brain because absolutely you, yeah because you put the effort in and now I know I will never make that mistake again. Or I will mm -hmm. never not know how to do that again, I should properly say. Yeah. Well, I mean, for your shoelace example, it, it fits the same part of the brain. Because you had either a struggle or a negative experience tied to it, your brain is going to hold on to that. You know, It's kind of using the fact that the negative thing we always hear about, which is uh, the fact that we tend to hear negative things like um, bad feedback like people, um, whatever the opposite of a compliment is, my brain can't think of what the word is. Insult. An insult. <laughs> I'm like a negative compliment. <laughs> like I insult, can't Jack. <laughs> you mean? <gasps> like Jack can't remember a word. Well, my brain was going, "Hey, there, there was, there was about 20 seconds ago. My brain tried to figure out. There's a word I need." And I can't find it. And my brain's <laughs> like, like it's talking. the word compliment. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's like a not compliment. Yeah, not compliment sounds good to me. I went non comp an uncompliment, an a compliment. I was anti compliment. Anti I could not I'm I'm not gonna start using anti compliments now, I think, instead of insults. <laughs> he gave me an anti compliment. It's really anti complimentary. <laughs> oh, I'm not gonna forget the word insult for a while. Right, no. See? Back to our point here. But we tend to remember insults more than we do compliments. We could get one insult from one person and 50 compliments in the same day. We're going to remember the insult more. Right. It's because kind it's, of using the same part of the brain saying, okay, you worked for it or you had a negative experience with it, so you're going to remember it. It's like, it's like a life hack for negative things in our brain for positive. Yeah. Yeah, I can say that. I mean, it actually – it's funny because that – gets into one of the concepts in the books and the idea of 
of learnings and the idea of kind versus wicked, meaning, and this actually even ties back to the book and specialization and generalization where a kind learning experience is more targeted towards a specialist. Mm. Like here are all the patterns you need to learn in chess. Right. Just go and memorize all these patterns. Here's how you play the here's how you play Mozart's Ninth Symphony mm-hmm. on violin, and this is exactly how it'll sound. You reproduce that. Exactly. Yep. Versus uh learning how to build a a logic based, you know, software program to handle all kinds of various inputs. <laughs> That's <laughs> extremely generalist. Extreme, yeah, exactly. Requiring specialized skills. Requiring specialized skills, but needing to draw from generalization. Yep. You know, it's actually it's actually funny right now. Like I've been having a lot of conversations with my, with my daughter, who's a junior in high school. So all the things about college and what I want to study is starting to come up. And what's interesting is she likes computer science. She likes she's always like kind of liked coding. She liked that, but she also loves linguistics and languages, and she loves ASL specifically. Like she's taking Ooh. ASL classes. Which, if you look at it from the outset, seems like a very broad, unrelated set of categories. Until you realize that the intersection of linguistics and computer science can make you a lot of money right now. Large language models, AI, understanding natural language processing, understanding how people think when it comes to language. She's building a broad skill set that she's she's working hard on trying to do, which is going to give her just... This, if she wants to get into that, not saying she does, but if she does, like, she'll make more money money than I'm making right out of college, like now, right out of college. <laughs> and, and, you know, just to draw another comparison about that, uh, musically, there are people, um, for example, I know a person who can literally pick up a banjo, a violin, a guitar, a cello, and play every single stringed instrument. Mm-hmm. He's a specialist in guitar. But he's accomplished it so much to the point where he's now reverting to a generalist, or mm-hmm. or change. Reverting is a bad word there. I think changing to a generalist, Be, applying his skills more broadly to yes. become a generalist. Yep. Right. Yeah. Which is really Has, interesting to see because it's it's one it's, it's interesting to see a specialist go to a generalist. Because you see how easily they pick up these other things and how easily they can. I have seen that. Yeah, I've seen that. I, I had, an, ath- I had a, an athlete friend who was the same way. He was a specialist in basketball. But like I and I, he was a generalist athlete. He specialized in basketball. But he was an amazing athlete all around. I couldn't play many sports and I like to play tennis. I threw him a tennis racket and he crushed me. He'd never played it before. <laughs> yeah. It was absolutely soul destroying. <laughs> but his general athleticism had meant he could pick up whatever sport and apply all the principles he'd learned from everything else to the game of tennis that he never really thought about up until that point. <laughs> right. I wonder with your friend, the guitarist, if him generalizing has made him a better guitarist. It's made him a better creator. Interesting. Talk, talk to me about that. Well, if you think about it, I mean, when you have someone who's a specialist, and yes, he, he I don't think it made him a better specialist at guitar. I think it made him because he exposed himself to, for example, playing bass, which mm-hmm. to the to the naked eye, oh, guitar player can play bass, bass player can play guitar, blah, 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 blah. 
couldn't be farther from the truth because musically you're talking about creating a rhythm section as opposed to an accent section, as opposed to a lead, as opposed to this and that and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But my point is because he drawed, he drew an understanding, a better understanding of what it was to be a bassist, what it was to be a drummer, what it was to be a violinist or a celloist or a banjo player and how each one of those parts contributed to the overall song. The, it, while those actions didn't necessarily make, he couldn't play a scale any faster than he could before. He couldn't play a G chord to a D to a C to an A any better than he could before, but he could take all of those tools and reapply them in a more interesting and in more effective way, which in turn made him, a better musician, a better yeah. generalist in the art of producing a product or producing a song. So if you think about that and translate to, to IT or linguistics, it's interesting too because music is a language too. Yeah. And once you learn a language, whether it be Spanish, whether it be music, whether it be binary, whatever, you can certainly adapt that to other scenarios because it's the same process. I don't care if it's writing code or playing bass. It's the same thought process. Yeah, it's getting your brain around these concepts how do i express these concepts in a different way right basically what no I, I like your story about what he was saying around he became a better, better creator but not necessarily better at guitar which is interesting because you know being a musician and creating and composing is very i feel like drawing from a generalist skill so that that's a more wild world but playing an individual instrument is pretty structured unless depending on what you're playing it can oh, yeah. be pretty structured and so the application the the broader application of what you're able to do as a musician is creation versus mm -hmm. just playing a song and if i'm hearing you correctly in the conclusion that i'm drawing a little bit is i'm in order for me to be a good let's say i want to create music I might need I'm going to need to draw more from the generalist skill sets of different instruments of different things in the in my creative skill set versus just playing the individual instrument for that piece. I will give you another example of that that's completely relevant to this conversation. It's musical though. Um everyone's heard of the band the Grateful Dead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um the funny thing about the big Grateful Dead is no one really understands who the Grateful Dead were was. I mean, certainly, yeah, they're a bunch of hippies, blah, blah, blah. That's the perception that they perceive, that they delivered. But the bass player um, was a composer. He wasn't a bass player. Hmm. He's a composer of music, classical, classical music, and, a, and he was handed a bass to play in the band. Jerry Garcia is a bluegrass player. <laughs> He's not a, a rock and... <laughs> yeah, he was not a rock and roll guy. He was a bluegrass guy. And you've got you know, all of these elements of different styles of music that came together and when they wrote songs, yes, they wrote rock and roll songs. I mean, very loosely, you know, founders of the jam band scene and all that, blah, blah, blah. All that's kind of nonsense. What the reality is, is you had musicians. Yes, they had the commonality of all being musicians, but one was a classical composer, one was a bluegrass guy, one was, a, one was this guy, one was that percussionist playing this style of format, and you took all these different styles and essentially kind of generalized them to produce one sound that mm -hmm. became very unique in the in the music industry and in American rock and roll history. And, of course, inspired a lot of other bands, like even Fish. And, and this is music I, I tend to get into and listen to, but I think what draws me into that is the fact that it's you've got a lot of folks that are specialists, 
but producing a generalized idea and a generalized concept and product to consume. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, it's the applicability of that specialization, mm-hmm. right? Um, but certainly drawing. What's interesting is like they're, they're specialists, but they're, they're playing outside of their context. Right. Right. They're having to apply it in a more general way. Which is, it's sort of like if, uh, you know, you were a, you know, let's say you were trained at, at uh, you know, creative writing and someone asks you and then you get into um, marketing, right? Yeah. It's a little bit different, but related, right? Or someone who is has been going to school for coding who goes into, you know, project management. There are similar concepts there that relate, you have the specialty, but you're using it more broadly, which I think is a little bit something the book doesn't necessarily get into, but I think is a good contextual takeaway for us in sales to think about is that no matter what your skill set is, especially if you're looking to get into sales right now, which is which is always kind of on my mind as we're making some of these episodes, is I know there's a lot of people who are trying to break into pre-sales. You may have a specialty that you feel like doesn't relate to sales, but you can use that specialty in sales and often have a greater impact than someone who has only been in sales their whole career. Yes. Because you're coming at it with a fresh perspective too. Oh yeah. That, that, I mean, it's funny, you know, when answering that question, oh, should I getting into pre-sales, the more experience you have, in my opinion, the better you're going to be getting into pre-sales particularly if you're coming from a tech support and implementation area. Because yeah. at that point, it's it, the hardest part is to how to, to be frank, dumb down what you're saying so that it makes sense and is mm-hmm. actually consumable by people. Do you know, who, you know who I found a great set of, a lot of people are coming from this career path into pre-sales is teachers. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, we have a lot of teachers leaving the profession, but a lot of teachers are moving into pre-sales as a good career shift. Think about what teachers have to do during the day. Take concepts, and they got to dumb it down. Sometimes yeah. really low. <laughs> so, sometimes you're, you're teaching high schoolers, and you, you have to dumb it down for different reasons. But like, let's say you're trying to take, you know, history and teach it to third graders. Why would a third grader care about it? Like, or math concepts or anything. You're you're relating a a, a concept you deeply are familiar with, in ways to someone who doesn't quite get what you're talking about. And if there's not a better definition of sales than that, I don't know what it is. That's, you know, that's funny you say that too, because I can I can name off quite a few people that I know they're former teachers that are now yeah. in pre-sales or in marketing or in one of the areas, you know, that it's just a natural progression for them. They want to expand their career, so they make that jump. Yeah, I mean, if I've been really impressed, I've, I've talked to a, a good amount of um, people trying to make the transition into pre-sales and the, te- the the former teachers that I talk to, I'm really, I'm really impressed by. They, they come with a lot of the soft skills around ideas and presentations and concepts and how to relate concepts, complex concepts in a simple way that you can't, if you're going, if you're coming through the traditional sales route of becoming an SDR and then inside sales, you're not going to have developed that. You're not going to have been forced to really think about a concept in an abstract way and relate it to someone who doesn't really get what you're talking about. Like you can be a successful SDR and never really understand how to do that. You can just get lucky. Right. <laughs> but teachers have to do it. That, that That is the core understanding of what it takes to be a teacher is that. And so it's, I, I've, anyone out there who's a teacher thinking about pre-sales, please, we need you. If you're, if you're going to leave anyways, 
please consider pre-sales. We definitely need you here. You know, it, it's funny. Now that we're talking about teachers, there's a quote actually from the Learning Fast and Slow chapter. I'd love mm. to read you that. Kind of stood out at me. Yeah. And it's it's about the idea of, I mean, there's standardized testing, a lot of talk about that. But some, and this is the quote, some people argue that part of the reason U.S. students do not do as well on international measures of high school knowledge is that they're doing too well in class. Nate Cornell, a cognitive psychologist at Williams College, told me, what you want to, what you want is to make it easy to make it hard. When I say that to you, just thinking about that comment, like what is that? Like I, cause I read it and I started immediately because I was like, hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not struggling with it, but I'm like I want to talk about it. Yeah. So I get the concept that school, if it is too easy, will impart zero knowledge i can actually relate a story between me and my wife we're very different academically um i would uh, school was not easy for me i mean i also didn't take some of it seriously but i had to struggle to keep my grades up i had to work at it i had to actually you know there were times where i couldn't quite get get the grades all the way in my wife however could study her way to any subject you could literally put her in front of any subject in any class any discipline and she could study her way to an a no offense to your right. wife, but I hate people like that. <laughs> but what's interesting has been there are some things where my wife and I took the same types of courses. In fact, there are things that she took that were in her. I took I took the same class as her. She got her degree in this subject. I did not. She has no recollection of the course whatsoever of anything that was taught. And I do. Because and she even admitted this. What she told me was the way she would learn, the way she would study, the way she would do school. She would learn it, she would test, and completely forget it the day after. Nothing was ever retained because she was able to just take a course, study it. She knew she knew how she had a process to get it done. There really wasn't the struggle involved there. It never really got even the classes that got hard didn't get hard in a way that made it stick because it was within her process. Well, that's the thing. She developed a process that allowed her to execute no matter what the intellectual challenge was. Yeah. I give her yeah. credit for doing that. That's impressive oh, enough. Uh, no, no. Like my wife is brilliant. brilliant. She's fantastic, right? Yeah. Like uh, this, I and mean, this is no shade towards her at all. Very different style. I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would have loved to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, I have about have, three degrees now. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have had to cram th uh, th three and a half years of what it would have taken to get my degree into five years. I wouldn't have had to, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> it would have been very different for me at that point, uh, but. The, that's the interesting part is that because I had to struggle and because the stuff I didn't get, I didn't get, I ended up years later retaining more of it when it's not the stuff that's not relevant. Obviously, the stuff that's still relevant that she uses every day is different. Right. This is stuff that's not. that The stuff that I know that I had to struggle to do, much like the quadratic equation stuff from pre-calc, not from pre-calc, from pre-algebra. Pre-calc is a whole different story. I, I, don't, I don't remember a single... I don't remember any because uh, that's a different story. I'm doing telling two stories at once <laughs> because I had to struggle to get to it. I remember it. Now there is a different type of struggle though, which is actually pre-calculus a little bit of a slip, but I actually wanted to bring this up. Pre-calculus was such a struggle, but, and I worked hard. I had to work hard at it. And actually the teacher had said, no one ever gets an A in my class. I'm like, well, I'm getting an A because the type oh. of person I was. And I got an A because I, I she, she gamified her class the right way, okay? <laughs> but I don't remember a thing from that class because 
I wasn't taught anything around what it means. Well, that's that's exactly to the quote I read then. Yeah. It there was struggle, but there was no context for the struggle. So I literally retained nothing from it. Right. And that's the only class I think I've ever had where I don't retain a single thing. Wow. Because you were more focused on the challenge and the experience. I would that that's what mm-hmm. you that's what your comment tells me. More more focused on the challenge, less focused on why I'm doing it, what it's for, what it means, and how how I'm gonna remember it. More of just I gotta get it done. Yeah. Before we run out of time, Adam, to if you could take us through the demo zone for this week so that we don't forget about that and run extra long for this week. So what do you got for us in the demo zone this week? In the demo zone today, we're going to be talking about something that I am staring right into. Yes, folks, that's your camera. You know, think about this. And it's interesting because, and I like, I I love drawing comparisons. And in pre-sales, you are, I hate to use the word required, but in sales, in, in, in any in any world, you're you're turning your camera on, mm-hmm. and in post sales, I find that nobody wants their camera on. We get more work done with the cameras off. They just don't want to see you. And um, it's funny; it was probably why I started my trend of baseball hats and t-shirts again. But <laughs> um, and I find myself like, oh no, I gotta go shave my face because I have a customer facing call, or actually to show them my face. But and, in, and even in the end, sometimes. The cameras never go on. And what I'm saying is is, is really the, the message here is be prepared for the camera to come on, but be comfortable if it doesn't because if you sign on and there's one person with a camera on and there's eight people that don't have it on and you're the one person with that camera on, you can be distracting from your own presentation just by having that on. Yeah, a little. it's a little bit of reading the room if they're right. not... Like the hope is that you can get someone to engage and turn it on because the engagement you get, being able to see someone read them is good. But if they're not willing to do it, you know what? Maybe you got to earn camera. It. Maybe you got to earn camera trust, right? right. You got you to earn that camera to be turned on. <laughs> or maybe you just got a bunch of engineers who don't like to turn their cameras on because that means they can't show off their cool new T-shirt or baseball hat. <laughs> that could also be. We, we have someone who didn't shave this morning. And right. I don't want to deal with it. Or, I don't want to deal with it. I'm not shaving my face. So that's that. My favorite line is I'm finishing my lunch, which is usually true because uh, my lunch always comes <laughs> at the worst possible time. Right. But uh, that's always my excuse. <laughs> well, thank you, Adam. I appreciate that walk to the demo zone. Uh, next week, we're going to be back. Uh, Ron Whitson, as I mentioned, is going to be joining us. So make sure you've got it scheduled on your TiVo to record. And we'll see you here next week. See you next week, folks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.